0: and good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Robert Gundry. That self-identification was not meant to draw applause. I teach in the Department of Religious Studies. You may wonder why banners aren't hanging from the rafters as they usually do, and why potted plants aren't decorating the platform. Where's the pulpit? And why aren't we starting with a period of silence, some music, and a prayer? We will pray at the end, but I want to make our time together as little like a chapel as possible and as much like a class as possible. And I want to make, and I want to make my talk as little like a sermon as possible and as much like a class Uh, like a lecture as possible. Before you groan too loudly, you already have groaned I notice, let me tell you my reason. It grows out of my topic for this morning. Learning for spiritual formation. Learning. That's what you do in a class. Chapel, you might learn some things in chapel too. You will this coming Friday and Monday, I'm sure. But generally, the things you learn in chapel don't represent the kind of learning my topic has in view. That is, academic learning. And chapel usually aims in other directions anyway. The praise and adoration of God, for example, and exhortation to Christian life and witness. Learning, not so much, especially not academic learning not in chapel. So away with the banners and potted plants, the pulpit, the silence, the music, we're in class, not chapel. This is the fourth installment in a series of five. Uh, Last semester, Professor Wenberg spoke on learning as worship. Professor McIntyre spoke on learning for compassion, And Professor Mullen spoke on learning for friendship. So now, learning for spiritual formation. My text for this lecture, I'll call it a lecture, my text consists of some verses in 1 Corinthians chapters 14 and 13. You should have read these chapters already as your homework assignment, but since I didn't get the syllabus to you on time, I'll read the text for you right now. Therefore, the person speaking in a tongue is to pray for the gift of interpretation. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit is praying, but my mind is unproductive. What to do then? I'll pray with the spirit, but I'll also pray with the mind. I'll sing with the spirit, but I'll also sing with the mind. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you do. But in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind to instruct other people than speak ten thousand words in a tongue. When completeness comes, that is, when maturity comes, what's partial, what's immature, will be discarded. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But now that I've become an adult, I've discarded childish things. End of text. I want to do four things in the next several minutes. It will be more than several. First, I want to describe the tug of war that takes place between learning and spiritual formation. Second, I want to convince you that although the Bible recognizes that tug of war, the Bible also unites learning and spiritual formation in a healthy marriage. Many marriages thrive on a certain amount of tension, you know. Third, I I want to cite some personal examples of learning that has contributed to spiritual formation. Fourth and last, I want to suggest a couple of ways you can make learning contribute to your own spiritual formation. Now let's get straight what spiritual formation means, or more simply what the word spiritual means. It's a word much in vogue nowadays, a buzzword. Recently, I was being interviewed on a talk show at KTMS, a radio station here in Santa Barbara. The interviewer was a Native American and a very nice man. He described himself to me as spiritual. Well, what does a man like that mean when he says spiritual? What do more or less secular people mean? when they say, oh, Sharon, she's a very spiritual person. So is Fred. He's spiritual, too. What do they mean by spiritual? They probably mean something like this. Uh, Sharon and Fred aren't swallowed up by materialism and commercialism. They pay attention to the interior side of life, the world of the human spirit. Not the world of cold, dry reason, either, but the world of wonder and beauty, and mystery. Maybe they practice a bit of meditation with a dash of religion, but nothing dogmatic or doctrinal. Oh no. And some depth psychology, perhaps yoga, and deep breathing exercises with eyes closed. Theirs is a world of friendship and romance and sensitivity, of poetry more than prose, and of feelings more than facts. Now, if we baptize that popular meaning of spiritual into our Christian vocabulary, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. It's this. Since spirituality has to do mainly with various sorts of feelings, learning can't have very very much to do with it. In fact, learning may damage spirituality. There's nothing like studying a college textbook, learning biology from Curtis's biology or history from Doikers and Spielvogel's world history or New Testament background from, well, what else? Barrett's New Testament background. There's nothing like studying a college textbook to dull your feelings and dampen your emotions. So if spirituality has to do mainly with feelings, stay away from the books I recently heard my colleague, Professor Jonathan Wilson, say that even though his parents didn't have a higher education, they encouraged him to go to college. Not my parents, oh no. They told me, don't go to college, not even a Christian one. All that learning will take away your zeal for God. You'll become lukewarm. Your private devotions will suffer. You won't witness the gospel to other people as much as you used to. My parents had gone to Biola, you see. (laughs) Hang on though. Before, Before Biola became a college, and a long time before it claimed the title of university, my parents didn't even call it Biola. They called it B.I. for Bible Institute. Why would you go to a college and waste your time studying biology and history and literature when you could be studying the Bible, God's Word? And then in my church, time after time after time, I heard those tired old jokes in which Ph.D. was said to stand for post hole digger and seminary was deliberately mispronounced cemetery. Maybe you've heard those jokes, too. Even learning the Bible is bad for you if it gets academic. Just a couple of weeks ago, I heard a preacher at a local church, as much as say so, and in the process, he even mentioned Westmont Westmont by name. You mustn't think that this fear of too much learning This fear of more and more knowledge, you mustn't think it's limited to fundamentalist Christians like my parents, not at all. You find it throughout human culture and even in the Bible. It's the fear of forbidden knowledge, knowledge that does you harm. After all, what was the tree called whose fruit Adam and Eve ate when they committed the original sin? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And doesn't the New Testament say that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? Pandora was the original human female in Greek mythology. When she got married, her dowry consisted of a box full of unknown contents. Curiosity got the best of her she and her husband opened the box and out flew all the evils and misfortunes and illnesses that afflict the world today. Curiosity killed the cat. What you don't know won't hurt you. That's what they say. I would I might forget that I am I, wrote George Santayana, and break the heavy chain that holds me fast. Happy the dumb beast hungering for food but calling not his suffering his own, wretched the mortal, pondering his mood, and doomed to know his aching heart alone. Ignorance is bliss, learning brings sorrow. The story of Frankenstein is a story of forbidden knowledge. The dangers of learning, it's tragedy. In First Enoch, a book quoted at length in the New Testament, in First Enoch, the evils that led to Noah's flood are blamed on what nowadays we'd call the teaching of the liberal arts to human beings. It was the fallen angels who taught them the, living, uh, the liberal arts. Fallen angels, so much for Westmont's faculty. <laughs> At least we had an exalted past before we started teaching you the liberal arts. The technological skills of those who built the Tower of Babel caused the Lord to come down and confuse their language because, as he himself said, soon they'll be able to do anything they want. Knowledge is power, and the Lord is a jealous God. The early Faust exchanged his soul for 24 years of knowledge and power. He landed in hell. In defiance of the gods, Prometheus stole fire from heaven and gave human beings the gift of fire, a symbol of enlightenment. And in punishment for giving them this gift of forbidden knowledge, Prometheus was chained to to Mount Caucasus, where every day a vulture tore out his liver and ate it. The liver grew back each night, only to be devoured again the next day. Ah, the risks of spreading knowledge around. J. Robert Oppenheimer Supervised the development of the atomic bomb. At MIT, just two years after the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he said, we physicists have known sin and this knowledge is a knowledge which we cannot lose. He meant we'd like to lose it, get rid of it, but we can't. The cloning of Dolly the sheep just a year or so ago in Scotland raises the same issue. And just last week, We heard a news report that two calves have been cloned in Texas. Is our human quest for learning too dangerous? Dr. Shears announcing only three weeks ago that he intends to clone a human being in two and a half years exacerbates the question. Whether he does or not, of course, is another question. But is our lust for knowledge, including our Christian lust for knowledge, luring us to our own destruction the way the sirens? Those uh, mythical sea nymphs living on an island off the coast of Italy lured sailors to destruction with the sweetness of their singing. Are we committing spiritual suicide with our academic learning? My parents said so. Perhaps the best teacher ever to teach at Westmont College, certainly one of the best. Her name was Grace King. She taught English literature. An alumni who had her say you could never forget her courses. She agreed with my parents, even though she had her own PhD, and was brilliant, absolutely brilliant in every way. And whether you think so or not, many of you probably agree, maybe most of you. You come to chapel to get some relief from learning, don't you? You get your fill of learning in classes, more than your fill perhaps. You don't want to hear another lecture like the one I'm giving right now. And if the chapel speaker reads her message instead of speaking off the cuff, if the message doesn't contain a lot of humor and interesting, touching stories, no matter how well-crafted and profound the message is, you talk about being bored and uninspired, right? I've heard you say so. With my own ears, I've heard you. Doubtless you've noticed I'm reading this lecture. Yes, I am, deliberately. I'm flaunting my manuscript in front of your eyes. Here it is. Not that my lecture is particularly well-crafted or profound. I'm just daring you to be bored, that's all. More learning in chapel? You don't want that. Right now, at this very moment, You'd rather be singing and clapping, swinging and swaying, lifting up your hands and dancing in the aisles than listening to me. It would feel more spiritual, wouldn't it? You want more spirituality, less mind. More motion, more emotion, more physical motion, and the more the better. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking those activities. I'm not criticizing good humor and tender stories, I'm making a completely different point. It's this. You put listening to lectures, hitting the books, and doing lab work in a separate, distant category from praying and singing and lifting up your hands to the Lord. Things that make you feel mellow or joyful make you feel spiritual, too. But things that make your mind work harder They just don't seem spiritual. They're intellectual, and intellectual isn't spiritual. When it comes right down to it, you're like my parents. You make learning and spirituality enemies of each other, or if not enemies, at least strangers to each other. Well, maybe I've exaggerated a bit. If I have, please forgive me. But I do have a point, don't I? Isn't that your tendency? It's mine, I confess, sure. I feel more spiritual when I'm shedding a tear or singing for joy than when I'm doing research for a paper. Who doesn't? But the question is whether crying and singing actually do make me more spiritual than when I'm pursuing research. Knowledge is dangerous, true, but the fact of the matter is (coughs) that that ignorance is equally dangerous. In the Bible, and all human cultures recognize that fact too. It isn't good that the soul should be without knowledge, says Proverbs 19.2. Oh you fools, be of an understanding heart, Proverbs 8.5. In the first chapter of Proverbs, lady wisdom shouts to the crowds milling about in the streets and marketplaces, won't you ever stop sneering and laughing at knowledge When you're struck by some terrible disaster, or when trouble and distress surround you like a whirlwind, I'll laugh and make fun of you. You'll ask for my help, but I won't listen. You wouldn't learn. But it's not just that ignorance is as dangerous to spirituality as knowledge is. It's not just that you can learn things without losing your spirituality. It's that spirituality, true, deep spirituality, requires knowledge. It requires learning. Why, the very word disciple means learner. It doesn't mean follower, as you've often heard mistakenly. It's true that disciples did follow their teacher, literally followed him, tagged along behind him. But the word itself, disciple, means learner. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Go make disciples, Jesus says in the Great Commission. Make learners of all the nations, teaching them. And Paul writes, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians two three. He also writes that you should have your mind renewed so that you may demonstrate in your life the will of God, what's good and pleasing and mature, Romans 12.2 what's good and pleasing and mature. That sounds an awful lot like the ancient Greek trio of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And, Paul says, the renewing of your mind is part of your spiritual service of worship. At least that's what most of our English translations have. But in this passage, the word that Paul uses for spiritual is logicane, from which we get logical. In other words... The renewing of our minds is a spiritually rational exercise in contrast with the merely physical or emotional or the irrational. And Peter uses the same expression when he tells us to desire as newborn babies the pure spiritual milk, that is, the rational milk which will make us grow up, 1 Peter 2.2. You've often heard here that according to Jesus, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. What's not often pointed out is that Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, but the word mind isn't there in Deuteronomy. Jesus adds it to the Old Testament text. And when in Mark's version of the uh, the commandment is quoted a second time, the word understanding creeps in. Love God with all your understanding, because understanding comes from using your mind. Deuteronomy doesn't have understanding either. The New Testament adds that word just as it adds the word mind. It was the early Christian theologian Tertullian who asked the questions, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? What compatibility is there between the academy and the church? He meant, what does biblical revelation, represented by Jerusalem, what does biblical revelation have to do with Greek rationality, represented by Athens? In other words, what does the gospel have to do with higher education? Well, Tertullian, just read your New Testament it deliberately adds the Greek term mind to a Jewish text that didn't originally have it. And Paul's command in Philippians 4.8 to make your mind dwell on whatever is true and serious and right and pure and charming and reputable and virtuous and praiseworthy, Paul's command looks like a page torn straight out of a Hellenistic handbook of moral philosophy such as some of you are reading right about now in Barrett's New Testament background. Even earliest Christianity represented a wedding of the mind with the heart, of rationality with feeling, of reason with emotion. Look at the Apostle Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts for spiritual people, the text that I read to you earlier. Talk about a passage that deals with spirituality. But Paul doesn't call the gifts spiritual because they arise out of our own spirits. And he doesn't call some people spiritual because they cultivate their own spirits. No, Paul calls the gifts spiritual because they're given by the Holy Spirit. And he calls some people spiritual because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So spiritual formation doesn't mean the formation of your human spirit. At least that's not the main meaning, or it shouldn't be. Your human spirit isn't the object of formation so much as it is God's spirit who does the forming. First and foremost, spiritual formation means the Holy Spirit's forming you, all of you, including your mind, not just your spirit. Because Paul says that if you have the gift of tongues, you should pray for the gift of interpretation too, lest your spirit pray, but your mind be unproductive. I'll pray with the Spirit but I'll also pray with the mind, Paul exclaims. I'll sing with the Spirit, but I'll also sing with the mind. I'd rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words in a tongue. Then he goes on to say, stop being little children in your thinking. Instead, be mature in your thinking. And in discussing love, which expresses itself through spirituality, through exercising your spiritual gifts, in discussing love, Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but now that I've become an adult, I've discarded childish things. That's what we're trying to get ourselves to do here at Westmont, all of us, to grow up, to become adults, to stop thinking and acting and talking like children, To exercise our powers of reason, like mature human beings. To live up to the meaning of homo sapiens. Sapiens means knowing. Homo sapiens, a knowing human, a creature who gains knowledge, who learns, who thinks, who uses his or her mind. Forget all that fluff you've heard about simple childlike faith. When Jesus said to become like little children, he wasn't referring to the way children believe without thinking, without asking questions. You'll find, find out soon enough that children do ask questions, lots of them. Jesus was referring to the humble position of children in his culture, quite unlike their exalted position in the youth-dominated culture where we live. Take a lowly position like that of a child, he was saying. But when it comes to believing and thinking and feeling, when it comes to your mind and emotions, grow up. Only then will you love effectively and meaningfully. Otherwise, your love becomes sappy and soupy and transient. It won't have depth or permanence. And your emotions will suffer too. Because unless your spirituality matures through learning you'll never enjoy the depth of feeling that a person of mental substance enjoys. A beautiful piece of music touches the heartstrings of a person who knows music much more deeply than it touches a musical ignoramus. A fine object of art speaks to a person who knows art much more eloquently than to an illiterate in art. The reason is that, in the end, You really can't separate the mind and the emotions. You really can't separate reason and feeling. They go together. Stay childish in one, and you'll stay childish in the other. Grow up in one, and you'll grow up in the other. If I don't like a classic piece of music, whether it's Mozart or jazz, I almost said whether it's Bach or rock, then I decided I'd better stick exclusively with music. But, but, for those of you who are convinced that rock really is music, I'm only making myself an illustration of the point. If I don't like a classic piece piece of music, if it bores me, leaves me cold, the reason isn't that there's something wrong with the music. There's something wrong with me. I'm ignorant. I'm deficient. I'm childish. The same goes for a great piece of art or literature, an elegant solution in mathematics, or argument in philosophy, or experiment in chemistry. I'm uninterested, not because it's uninteresting, but because I haven't learned enough to be interested in something that's inherently very interesting, even exciting. Why do you think we still read C.S. Lewis with profit and enjoyment? Take his science fiction, his children's fairy stories, the Narnia series or his book, The Four Loves. What gave these books their staying power so that people read them now even more than when Lewis was alive? I'll tell you the answer. He incorporated his great learning into his spirituality. It deepened his spirituality. You see, before he wrote The Four Loves, he wrote a scholarly book, Allegory of Love, a study in medieval tradition. And as he was writing the Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, the Narnia series, and other Christian books, he was writing Preface to Paradise Lost and English Literature in the 16th Century. The learning that produced these scholarly technical books made his popular Christian books weighty enough to stand the test of time, unlike the bestsellers hit the Christian market, briefly topped the, sh- the charts, and then get, then get blown away. They're too flimsy, too lightweight. Or take Blaise Pascal. We heard his name evening before last at the Phi Kappa Phi lecture. He was a mathematician and physicist as well as a philosopher and master of French prose. He laid the foundation for the modern theory of probabilities. His law of pressure led him to invent the syringe and the hydraulic press, and he was a Christian. Why do people still read his Les Pensées? French for the thoughts. Why do people still read Pascal's thoughts, even though he died over 300 years ago at the age of 39? You'll find his book down at Borders, or Chaucer's, or any other secular bookstore worth its salt, not just in Christian bookstores. In fact, you'll stand a better chance in secular bookstores than in Christian ones, given the amount of froth and foam that, sad to say, oozes off the shelves of most Christian bookstores nowadays. What draws people to Pascal's thoughts? It's the profundity of those thoughts. Even when his Christian thoughts weren't related directly to his math and physics, his great learning in those fields gave him a habit of thinking deeply about the Christian faith, too. So we still read him and feel ourselves spiritually formed when we do. Here's someone we don't read anymore, but do we ever feel the effects of his ministry? I'm referring to John Wesley. He was a traveling evangelist, the founder of the Methodist denomination. In his prime, he averaged 15 to 20 miles a day on horseback, preached three to five times every day of the week, and spent hours in prayer. He was, in other words, what you'd call spiritual, in capital letters. Yet in his journal, which runs several big volumes, he tells us, history, philosophy, and poetry I read on horseback, having other employments at other times. And not just light reading, either. I was paging through his journal at random and found references to Belisarius's life of Pope Sixtus the Fifth, and Joseph Priestley's treatise on electricity. Nor did Wesley limit himself to reading on horseback. He also composed his own poetry, but not in English, so much as in Greek hexameter. I also ran across quotations, apparently from memory, of Homer, and Plato, and Lucian, all in the original Greek, and of Virgil, and Ovid, in the original Latin. He talks about reading the early church fathers, too, like Ephraim the Syrian. He even read the writings of the early church fathers to to his converts in their private living rooms. Can you imagine a present-day evangelist, or pastor for that matter, making house calls and reading passages to ordinary church members out of Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Athanasius? Wesley did. For himself, he regularly read the Old Testament in Hebrew in the New Testament in Greek, he studied German and French and Spanish. He not only studied them, he wrote a German grammar, he wrote a French grammar, he wrote a French dictionary, he wrote a Hebrew grammar, he wrote an English dictionary, he translated German hymns into English. He wrote several books of history, a history of England and the history of Rome, for example, a book on logic, another book on medicine. He edited, edited the works of other authors in a magazine. All in all, he authored translated and edited over 200 works. The Wesleyan revival that came out of the spiritual formation of this learned man who wedded his mind to his heart, that revival of 200 years ago is a very large part of the reason Westmont College exists today as an evangelical Christian institution. And if you want examples of Christian women who wedded their minds to their hearts, All you have to do is look around you at our faculty. I won't embarrass these women by calling their names, but we have some remarkable examples, and you know who they are. Look up to them, treasure them, emulate them. And in saying so, I'm addressing you males as much as the females. You're getting the idea of learning for spiritual formation, I hope. Not just learning the Bible and theology for spiritual formation, but learning everything you learn so that the Holy Spirit may form you into a substantial person who can make a profound impact for the kingdom of God. I don't suppose any of us will turn out to be a Wesley, a Pascal, or a Lewis, though you never can tell. Some of you may surprise us. I'm not, I'm not, emphatically not, implying it takes an intellectual giant to be a spiritual giant. Learning the liberal arts isn't the only kind of learning the Holy Spirit can use for spiritual formation. And the history of the church is full of examples very different from the ones I've mentioned. But we're a college, and if God has called you here, he's called you here to learn the liberal arts so that the Holy Spirit may use them to form you, transform you by renewing your mind and conform you to the image of Christ. So relate your learning to that kind of formation. If you're studying kinesiology, think of yourself as a spiritual athlete. The Apostle Paul regularly uses athletic metaphors for Christian living. And stretching through the Christian centuries, there's a long, rich tradition of believers as spiritual athletes. The tradition began with Jesus himself agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Agony is an old Greek word for an athletic contest. Jesus was wrestling in prayer. Prayer takes effort. Conversational prayer is almost an oxymoron. To pray is to wrestle, as Jacob did even earlier than Jesus, wrestling with the angel of the Lord and gaining a blessing. Paul, too, talked about wrestling in prayer and also about running the Christian race. Kinesiology should translate into spiritual training, spiritual discipline, spiritual practice, using the means of grace the way you use athletic equipment in the fitness center. If it doesn't, you're not letting your learning, uh, learning of kinesiology contribute to your spiritual formation. Or take the learning of rhetoric in communication studies. Rhetoric has to do with the use of words, or as our own Professor Greg Spencer says, loving appropriately through speech. The great North African Bishop St. Augustine had been a teacher of rhetoric, Listen to the way he brings his knowledge of rhetoric into a Christmas sermon on the divine word, now incarnate in Jesus Christ. I quote, It isn't at all strange that human speech is inadequate when we undertake to praise the word of God as he exists in the bosom of the Father. For how would our tongue be able to, to pay suitable tribute to him? It isn't strange for us to fail to find words with which to speak of the word by whom the word was spoken that gave, gave existence to us. For our mind brings words into existence after they've been thought over and formed, but our mind itself is formed by the Word. Augustine doesn't merely use rhetoric to say something appropriately and eloquently. No. He makes rhetoric the very subject matter of what he has to say about Jesus, God's Word, God's communication to us. Jesus is God's rhetoric making all our rhetoric possible and then overwhelming it when it comes to speaking about him. So what Augustine has to say is a lot more satisfying than superficial Christmas sermons about how hard it must have been for pregnant Mary to ride a donkey to Bethlehem. Of course, we don't know that she did ride a donkey or how hard it was for her to endure hometown gossip about her questionable pregnancy. If you want to talk about Mary at Christmas time, Consider these words that Ephraim the Syrian put in her mouth. Almost all his sermons were cast in the form of poetry. And here he has Mary speaking to baby Jesus. Your home, my son, is higher than all. Yet it was your wish to make me your home. Heaven is too small to contain your splendor. Yet I, poorest of creatures, am carrying you. Let Ezekiel come and see you on my knees, Let him kneel down and worship you and acknowledge it was you he saw there, lifted up by the cherubim above the chariot. Remember Ezekiel's vision of God's chariot with wheels within wheels? And let Ezekiel call me blessed who carry you now. The very chariot stops, amazed that I carry its master. My bosom is your home. Your radiance rests on my knees. The throne of your majesty is held in my arms. Instead of the chariot wheels, my fingers clasp you. Come, all you who have discernment you prophets who beheld hidden things in your true visions, you farmers who sowed seed and slept in hope, rise up and rejoice at the harvest. Look, in my arms I clasp the wheat sheaf of life that provides bread for the hungry, that feeds the needy. Rejoice with me, for I carry the sheaf full of joys. Now that's spirituality infused with rhetoric. And if you don't learn to infuse rhetoric into your spirituality, you're failing the very purpose of taking communication studies at a liberal arts college. In my original draft, I included another suggestion for econ and business majors, and then I scrapped it because it didn't seem to uh, to illustrate what I'm getting at. Now I'm going to reintroduce it, but as a counterexample, an example of what I don't mean. Here it is: If you're studying econ and business, don't study them to better yourself. As a Christian, study econ and business to serve the public better. One of my jobs when earning my way through college and seminary was working in Hinshaw's department store at the Quad in Whittier. The store isn't there anymore, but Hinshaw himself was a very successful businessman. Earlier in his life, he'd managed a whole chain of department stores throughout the Northwest. And before that, he'd managed the chain of Montgomery Ward stores throughout the whole country. At one time, he'd been among the 100 highest paid CEOs in the USA. Yet everywhere I went in his store at the Quad, I'd see little signs posted on the desks of the clerks. The wording differed from sign to sign, but the gist was always the same. Remember, Hinshaw said to his clerks, remember. It's more important to serve the needs of the customers than to increase our profits. Hinshaw had grown up an evangelical Quaker and was infusing Christian spirituality, the spirituality of serving others, into his business practice. But that's not my point this morning. It's not to work Christianity into your business. It's not to work spirituality into your learning. You should, of course. You should make your learning an act of worship, as Professor Wenberg was saying last semester. And to make your learning an act of worship, you need to put a Christian perspective on the literature you study, on the art, on the psychology, on the sociology, on the the poli-sci, on whatever you study. Sometimes it'll be easy to do, sometimes hard to do. How do you put a Christian perspective on math? I don't know. Maybe our math teachers can tell us. But this morning isn't about putting spirituality into learning, about infusing our learning with spirituality. It's the other way around. It's about putting learning into spirituality, about infusing spirituality with learning, so that our spirituality will have density and depth and weight so that our spirituality is thoughtful and wise and knowledgeable as well as warm and glowing and tender. Learning for spiritual formation means working everything you learn in all your courses, working it into your Christian life and witness instead of keeping it separate from your spirituality. Instead of walling off your spirituality and keeping it supposedly safe from your learning, pray the Holy Spirit to make your learning nourish your spirituality nurture your Christian life, and inform your Christian witness. I've talked long enough. You can figure out other examples of learning the liberal arts for spiritual formation. So let me close with a, spirit, uh, with a scriptural passage plus a Greek myth. In Colossians 3:12 through 14, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Clothe yourselves with emotions of pity, with generosity, humility, meekness, patience, putting up with each other and showing grace to each other, just as also the Lord showed grace to you. And over all these traits, put love, which is the bond of maturity. In other words, love is the belt that binds together all these other articles of clothing, the virtues of Christian character, and makes them an integrated whole. Now the Greek myth. It's one I've already referred to about the sirens those sea nymphs who wooed sailors to destruction with the sweetness of their singing. Odysseus was sailing home with his men after the Trojan War. They approached the island of the sirens. Someone warned Odysseus what was liable to happen, what had happened to many other sailors whose bleached bones lay scattered about the island. So Odysseus stuck wax in the ears of his men. That way they wouldn't hear the singing of the sirens. Then he had his men tie him so tightly to the ship's mast that even though he could hear the sweet singing of the sirens, he couldn't break loose to steer the ship toward the island. As they sailed past then, Odysseus heard the singing and savored its beauty, but he didn't succumb to its fatal attraction. He was bound by the cords of love for Penelope, his faithful wife who'd been waiting for him 20 years back home. In the same way, our liberal arts hold charms that could prove fatally attractive. They could diminish or destroy our spirituality. But we can savor them safely. And more than that, learn them to the enrichment of our our spirituality if we're bound by the cords of love for our ever-faithful God who's waiting for us to come home. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Let us pray with some help from a slightly revised version of Isaac Watts, let us pray. Great God, when you descend within our view, you charm our reason to pursue, but leave it tired and fainting in the unequal chase. Or if we reach unusual height till near your presence brought, there floods of glory check our flight, cramp the bold pinions of our wit, and all untune our thought. Plunged in a sea of light, We roll where wisdom, justice, mercy shines. Infinite rays and crossing lines beat thick confusion on our sight and o'erwhelm our soul. Great God, our reason lies adoring, yet our love would rise on pinions not her own. Faith shall direct her humble, humble flight through all the trackless seas of light to thee, the eternal fair, through Christ made known. Amen. You're dismissed.